Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. As our longtime listeners can appreciate, I try to avoid drama and hyperbole in these podcasts. As data trends and data interdependencies provide much more guidance for our future well-being. I can be a little bit more specific on my point. During COVID, somewhere between 6 and $7 trillion, possibly more, was borrowed by our federal government and pumped into stimulus and tax credit programs. With the country's GDP just above $20 trillion in 2020, you can imagine what six to seven trillion dollars of additional infusions, borrowed money into our economy produced. And as a result, our GDP grew pretty quickly to $25 trillion as of last year, based on the resulting high inflation coming from these large amounts of cash and benefits being created basically out of nowhere, being created out of new debt, actually. And now we are in an environment of continuing high government spending, and the deficits are almost $2 trillion expected each year, well into the future, virtually guaranteeing that the sugar high of deficit spending may continue to at least try to prop up the feeling of emotional well-being, at least for a while. At the same time, we're seeing the emotions actually swing from well-being to fear, and well-entrenched fear. And there's actually an index for this. You may want to Google CNN, Fear and Greed Index, for more perspective on links or measured links between mass emotional well-being measurement and financial market performance. This is sort of a big topic, so I'm going to briefly end it pretty much here. But this index is not an attitudinal survey. It's not going around asking people how they feel. It is a weighting of key financial market metrics that relate to well-being or to fear or extreme fear or anywhere in between, actually. My own takeaway is that a multi-month trend from the marketplace that we've seen, which has moved from greed to neutral to marketplace fear, and now in the past month, has been pretty much entrenched in extreme fear, which is the most severe category. And it appears that with the international situation as well as the domestic volatility, terrorism, riots, you know as well as I know where the issues are globally as well as in the United States, we can't really escape the minute-by-minute reporting of these kinds of issues. So I guess in total... Maybe I'll ask if you can imagine that today many are much more fearful of their financial futures and family well-being than even a year ago or two years ago, much less 10 years ago or longer. I can imagine that. I'll remind myself that bad decisions can be easily made during periods of emotional stress or an environment precipitating fear. So let's try to put fear into a box and stick that box in a drawer for a few minutes. So now what? Well, here are today's issues that are arguably the most severe issues that you and I have to deal with. First of all, a credit crunch brought on by high and increasing interest rates coupled with decreasing credit availability. It's true we'll learn more about credit and interest rates this week, 
as this is a week for the November Federal Reserve meeting, and it's also the week that the Treasury Department reveals expected Treasury security auction plans from now through the rest of the year. But let's not react to news from these press releases that come this week, and let's try to focus on the longer term, because as we know, these press releases get discounted or they get marked in the market within minutes or an hour, and then we're left with the longer-term issues. So let's talk about the longer-term issues. One of them is the government, regardless of this week, has to finance trillions of dollars of new and refinanced debt at a time when large international funds are dropping their exposures to U.S. federal debt. Here are several reasons why this negative trend continues. China and the BRICS countries are major competitors or adversaries, if you wish, and they are rolling out their own international settlement currencies and by design are moving away from the dollar. I think it's pretty obvious, at least to me, that Russia and China, as well as other countries, don't want to be investing in the debt of their primary adversary, which this was not so true 10 years ago or 20 years ago when they were major buyers of U.S. debt. So generally, it's not an accepted good idea to support the debt of one of your adversaries. And I think that's going to continue moving their investments away from the dollar securities. Additionally, U.S. banks have traditionally been large buyers of U.S. treasuries, but in the past year or two have lost hundreds of billions of dollars of their own lendable reserves as interest rates have moved up. And as interest rates move up, the value of the securities move down, right? And Bank of America in particular has reportedly lost, but avoids reporting, over $600 billion in market value declines in their existing bond portfolios. Add to that the fact that Social Security for decades was a buyer of government securities, but now has to actually sell them to pay benefits that week to week, month to month, year to year now exceed employee and employer contributions. And finally, I'll mention that the Federal Reserve itself, which has bought 20, 30, 40 percent of securities sold in recent auctions, has defined themselves as sellers as they are in a quantitative tightening period. They are either selling or redeeming or not reinvesting amounts of principal that are returned to them. So this is a really large buyer of U.S. government debt that's changing courses to, if anything, a redeemer or even a seller. And these amounts in total are very large. These amounts between now and the end of the first quarter of next year, we're talking about amounts that are more than a trillion dollars. These are very large amounts. So regardless of the Federal Reserve discount rate decisions this week and going forward, the trillions of dollars of new and refinanced treasury debt will keep interest rates high. And some of the Wall Street respected estimators are beginning to publish that long-term interest rates could actually go up another one or two percent or even more in the forthcoming months. So imagine what a 10% mortgage rate would do to both the residential and commercial real estate markets, as if 8% today isn't bad enough. 
And this could well happen again. It did happen in the early 1980s. Secondly, as a major theme, the sugar high of all the stimulus money and tax credits has now run its course. Households, most recently reported, have run out of net savings. They're dipping into their savings. They're no longer net savings. This happened back in the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, and that had pretty horrific outcomes. Additionally, excess bank reserves, which have helped prop up the government security buying, are expected to go to zero by this coming February. So don't get misled by stronger gross domestic product growth announced recently. In my opinion, the GDP is misreported as it contains significantly more unreported inflation to the detriment of real growth. If you're experiencing a healthy growing economy, I tip my hat to you, as most everyone else is trying to counter higher finance charges, higher food prices, higher fuel costs, higher rent, higher mortgage payments, and even higher local and federal taxes. Business bankruptcies are on a solid, unfortunately new uptrend, and business credit conditions appear terrible for those who have to borrow to survive. A third recent trend, and I'll just mention that before I go on that for the past two or more years, this podcast has focused on preparing for many of the trends which I'm talking about. And we actually did, I think, prepare. In fact, many trends that we suggested were on the horizon have happened, including going back two years ago, interest rates heading up substantially with bond prices heading down. Our suggestion was and continues to be to get out of long-term bonds and long-term bond funds and hold cash. In other words, we tried to help everyone avoid the losses that have occurred in the past year or two. Additionally, we helped, I think, I hope, recognize that all the uptrends in stock market averages were strongly impacted by only a handful of technology-related stocks. We encouraged listeners month after month to lower their exposure or just sell these market leaders, the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, including several other stocks and actually more recently some of the high-tech stocks. Was this advice on target? You can judge that, but in my opinion, you bet it was. Additionally, we have encouraged our listeners to recognize that the cyber coins are not stores of value and they are backed by nothing. The cybercoin shakeout hurt many, and the jury's still out on Bitcoin. We can at least observe that the cybercoins were not hedges against inflation, as many decided and actually many sellers promoted during COVID. We advise to avoid trading up in the house buying euphoria during COVID. And today, many of the hot markets have turned ice cold, with more pain coming week to week. For example, recent data shows record numbers of houses under contract for sale were actually canceled or otherwise didn't make it through the sale process. House hunting activity across the United States is notably declining, even though a few markets with long-term shortages continue to hold up. Most markets are not holding up. And finally, a commercial real estate we reported was a threat to the viability of small and medium-sized banks. This has yet to shake out, but more investors are catching on. The KFW index of bank stocks is now lower than it was during the Silicon Valley-inspired banking crisis. Even though the banks are not reporting losses that they're holding on their balance sheets, people are catching on. They have very large losses that will be coming up. I'll stop here. But our long-term listeners, I think, know there is so much more we could review. But back to today's issues that will further confuse and regretfully catch many wrong-footed. So what's next? 
It's regretful but pretty obvious that we need to plan for a long-term scenario of wars and increased terrorism. Again, the lens I use for viewing global events is the growing separation between the Western allies, North America, Western Europe, the UK, Japan, Australia, and so forth, and the growing BRIC alliances, China, India, Middle East, Russia, Iran, and so forth. I know dividing the world into two camps is not totally accurate, as India, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, and some others are crafty to play the middle, but this differentiation seems helpful in terms of timelines and trends. Bottom line, it directly impacts long-standing supply chains. It will raise prices as we lessen dependence on Asia and build new supply chains and will impact U.S. energy policies and trade. Yes, one more cycle of impacting trade policies and energy policies. And here are a few serious examples of what I mean. What could be more important than the future of electric vehicles? Well, China is the major global supplier of flake graphite. Graphite is one of the largest, if not the largest, ingredient of an electric battery for a car or a truck. In October, the Chinese government put strong new controls over graphite exports, and you can bet this is aimed at the United States. They also placed new controls on necessary rare earth metals needed for pretty much all electronic items, including cell phones. Let's see if cobalt is in the next round of their controls, as refined cobalt is key for all production of lithium-ion batteries. Yes, electric vehicles would be severely impacted. Maybe we're doing too little too late, but the issues are now finally precipitating new government grants and financing to start building up U.S.-based graphite and cobalt mining into production. Given that an Idaho cobalt mine is our only United States cobalt mine and an Alaska graphite resource is our major future source of graphite, this likely will not solve the issues, but at least it's a beginning. Secondly, at least one major pipeline project that was first shut down by the Biden administration is recently restarted. Maybe this is a trend. Don't know yet. Number three, in Europe, Germany is closing its nuclear power plants and strangely enough is now in the position of having to make agreements to bring in new nuclear power sources from France as France's electric grid is primarily nuclear powered. Nuclear power Furthermore, requires uranium, and uranium prices, particularly in the past six months to a year, have been heading up as Western countries have de-emphasized this power source for many years. Even Japan, after Fukushima, is planning significant new sources of nuclear power. Of course, an issue is, and everything I mentioned so far, is lead times. From making plans to building plants or to building mines can take years and likely decades. The same is especially true for uranium mines, years to decades. Our best case is that uranium resources globally seem pretty divided between the Western allies, Canada and Australia primarily, and the BRICS countries, Russia, South Africa, and China primarily, with some of the former USSR countries kind of in the middle and some of the African countries unfortunately more aligned with China. Overall, it's time, in my opinion, to begin personally investing for a major resurgence in raw materials, mining, and production. Or as Wayne Gretzky reportedly said, skate where the puck is going, not where the puck is.
Our theme for future podcasts will include deploying investment monies from the sale of the bonds and general stock weightings that we've been strongly recommending for one to two years, deploying that cash into mining stocks benefiting from the reconstruction of Western sourced supply chains, and being positioned for the upcoming price increases of battery and industrial raw materials resources. This long-term strategy will become even more important, in my opinion, as new BRICS currencies compete more and more with the U.S. dollar. But the competition with the U.S. dollar is a really deep and complex topic, and we'll explore that separately over time. So be careful, be conservative, avoid debt, and actually be comfortable holding large balances of cash of your investment monies. Until next time. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.